Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Friday Twilight Show, a weekly look at the issues affecting Scottish education. This week, we'll discuss calls for a tutoring scheme for the poorest schools. We'll hear about studying law in high schools from teacher Paul Hamilton, and we'll consider exam reform in Scotland. And we'll also ask, won't somebody please think of the children as we get into the outcry over the alleged child sex survey? Don't go anywhere. Well, hi everyone and thanks for joining me for what is my first show on Teacher Talk Radio. Welcome to the Twilight Show on Fridays from 6 till 7.30 where we're going to be talking about some of the big issues that are affecting Scottish education. This being my first show, can I just, you know, preemptively say um, that I apologise for any of the inevitable technical glitches. Um, but hopefully you can sort of bear with us for the first one as we as we kind of get through this. As I said in the intro, we do have a guest uh, lined up this evening as well, who is Paul Hamilton, who's a teacher from Scotland, who's going to be on talking to us about uh, the way in which he goes about teaching legal studies in his uh, secondary school classroom um, just outside of Glasgow. So I think maybe just before we move on, because a lot of people might not, well, probably won't know anything about me, um, I am a former teacher, an FE lecturer in Glasgow, also an education-focused journalist and an author, having recently uh, published a book called Class Shows, The Truth About Scottish Schools. Um, over the last uh, 10 years, I've been in education now. Um, much of my focus has, over that kind of time, been on the way in which the system works for, or sometimes works against, those with least. And that's something that has ended up being a bit of the focus of so my journalism and my writing as well. And I'm quite excited to have the chance to come on Teacher Talk Radio and maybe explore some of those issues. And I'm also going to be looking to maybe shine a light on some issues that perhaps aren't discussed um, maybe as widely as they should be. So rough outline in terms of what to expect, because of course, still a once a teacher, always a teacher. So here's the, the learning intentions and such. Um, we'll be looking at the issues that are affecting Scottish education on a week to week basis. I'll be picking a few of the things that have stood out during the last say seven days and talking a bit about them. We'll talk a little bit about um, a, a larger structural or maybe philosophical issue affecting Scottish education. And I'm also, as with the guest tonight, Paul Hamilton, going to try to make sure that we spend a little bit of time at least um, talking about the good things that are happening in Scottish education, because it's very, very easy to focus on all the problems. It's very easy to sit and shout and cry and talk about everyone getting things wrong. Um, and sometimes I think the narrative around Scottish education goes a little bit too far that way. We're, we're, we're very, very good sometimes at criticising things, um, but perhaps we don't talk enough about some of the wonderful things that happen in Scottish schools up and down the country. So we'll be making some space to talk about all of that as well. But let's just get into it and um, look at what the the current issues are that are affecting, affecting Scotland schools this week. So the biggest issue this week, the one that there was absolutely no way to avoid and the one that I really wish wasn't the first thing I was talking about on my first uh, my first show on the station is, um, I can't quite believe I'm saying this, but what you may have seen reported as the child sex survey in schools in Scotland. 
Um, you may have seen a great deal of outrage over this apparently explicit survey aimed at young people. You, if you were paying attention, may have noticed that people who have never cared before about such things suddenly seem terribly concerned about things like safeguarding children and children's privacy. We even got to the stage where some people were suggesting that Scotland's politicians were trying to use a, a, a survey um, in order to, to groom children in classrooms. So you know, what's going on? What's this, this great threat facing our kids? What's the impending evil from which we must protect them at all costs? Well, it, it really is just, it's, it's a survey. It's just a survey. Um, it's an exercise in gathering information um, about aspects of young people's health and well-being. There's a set of questions that ask them about different things um, in order to gather data on the health and well-being of young people. And there are some questions on uh, sexual behaviour and sexual activity for older pupils. And if all that sounds completely uncontroversial to you, it's because it should be completely uncontroversial to you. People will, I suspect, be unsurprised to know that this sort of thing has been going on for ages. Um, I was reading a essentially a version of this um, from a few years ago um, that I'll be referring to in a little bit, in a little minute. Um, and one of the first points it makes is that it's nearly 30 years old. So this isn't, isn't something new, um, but it has become in Scotland over the last you know, week to two weeks, this apparently huge and controversial issue that we're supposed to take very, very, very seriously. So it got, I mean, when this all kicked off, well, again, you'll be unsurprised to hear on Twitter, um, it even got to the stage, you know, somebody from Public Health Scotland uh, felt, you know, felt the need to come on and kind of tweet a thread explaining, listen, you know, we've been gathering this data for ages and it's actually quite important that we know things about, like, the things that young people are doing and what's happening with them so that we can help them. And um, it all got very out of hand very, very quickly. I, I And I think... Um, some people are really determined to view this as like a real serious issue, one that's really gets to the heart of, of you know some sort of problem in education. I just think maybe before we go any further, it's probably worth noting, you know, that this has gone on for a long time, and it seems a little bit strange um, that it has suddenly become this massive issue now, coincidentally during a very obvious culture war in Scotland, um, and now all of a sudden, coincidentally, it's become this huge problem to gather the data, you know. Um, but what's actually going on? You know, what's the the reality of this? If you have, if you've been lucky enough to avoid it, I don't know how. Um, for any listeners in England, I don't know how far this particular story has travelled. If it's made it to you, maybe you've been dead lucky and avoid it. The first people might have seen was a front page on the Courier newspaper that went for you know the kind of classic explicit content warning imagery on the front and then it was going to like you know tell you the truth about what the questions were and it was all very exciting then you saw the questions and wondered what all of us was about personally i thought even the even the the front page the imagery that is used was pretty irresponsible from a usually you know responsible and measured newspaper but it felt pretty irresponsible it felt like a clear attempt to whip up lots of anxiety over this issue in the same way that lots of anxiety has been whipped up over a number of issues that affect young people and you know let's not not kill ourselves on here that kind of reaction gets sales and it gets clicks and that's at least part of what is going on and you'd be very very naive to think that that's um that that basic premise has nothing to do with all of this but it, it certainly went beyond that. It really kicked off 
with a push from people linked to something called the Alaba Party. Now, again, you know, some of you might have been very, very lucky. Um, I have no idea what that is. It was supposed to be Alex Salmon's um, triumphant comeback vehicle into Scottish politics. And I, I get the impression it was supposed to be like a, a gleaming limo, but it ended up being more like one of those kind of burning clown cars that you see um, in cartoons, you know, coming barreling into the scene and crashing through everything. Um, the party's intensely socially conservative. It probably wouldn't even exist were it not for the campaign against GRA reform and the broader anti-trans and actually commonly anti-LGBT currents that are developing, again, certainly um, through a lot of conversations that you see up here. And I get the impression, you know, south of the border as well. So as a result, you know, uh, coming from that particular party, you know, it's going to attract the sorts of people, you know, who can't even hear the word sex without being shocked to their very, very core, alongside a cast of, you know, you know to be frank, some of the worst people in Scottish politics, but um, lots of people with, you know, more than one issue of, you know, prejudice in terms of their views of other people. This has become clear over recent months. The concern now is that they're seeing a very obvious play into using education as part of all that campaigning, because this is also fundamentally a political opportunity. The simple fact is that Alex Salmon's party is a bit of a joke. Their predictions of a huge electoral breakthrough um, turned out to be, were laughed at at the time, turned out to be nonsense. One of the very few ways they can get attention is through a stunt like this, which clearly doesn't make it okay, actually in many ways makes it worse. But again, it's about understanding, I think, the, the motivations behind this, because it's a story that has captured um, much of what's going on in education in the last week and there is as always a risk that it spills over and becomes quite a major disruption to teachers trying to do their jobs. But it wasn't just you know Alex Salmon's comeback party, the Tories were involved as well because they haven't seen a bandwagon they don't like the look of when it comes to schools in Scotland. I saw Liz Smith tweeting about it days ago but even today Megan Gallagher MSP was wailing on Twitter about um, quote intrusive personal questions about sex and relationships you know, you can hear the outrage in the tweet, can't you? Um, so the Tories are demanding that the questions are withdrawn because they are intrusive. The, you know, the implication being that we don't want to know what sexual activities teenagers are getting up to, which is fine if that's your position and certainly on brand for the Tories, whose you know, approach of if we don't admit to it, then it didn't happen is, you know, been, um, been rolled back out in the last couple of days. But it's not really one worth taking massively seriously. Um, but then this spilled beyond the usual um, politicians and went to, in fairness, the usual columnists. So we had Kevin McKenna, who recently wrote a column entitled Scotland's political elites are cancelling what it means to be a woman. And once tweeted about not knowing how seasons work. Um, he even got a bit out of it talking about um, you know, all of this in a column that he writes. So there's a there's a, a particular bit in it, you know, much of it if you've read Kevin's columns, you've read it, you've read it before, but there's a bit in this one, you know, where he's talking about providing clean, um, I've got it written down, Kleenex and massage oil and blow up sex mannequins and subscriptions to porn sites and vibrators and fluffy handcuffs before then going on to decry Nicola Sturgeon and her voyeuristic cabinet. And, you know, everyone's got bills to pay, but, you know, come on, it's all... It's all very demonstrably ridiculous. Some, I mean, admittedly, some of these people believe this stuff very, very strongly, but that's not worth taking them seriously. 
And at the same time as all that was kind of overflowing and effervescing, along came the usual for social media. Along came the anonymous, in this case, this being Scottish education, you know, pro-salmoned, anti-woke, anti-anything progressive Twitter accounts. Um, great workout for the mute and the block buttons, obviously, but, you know, still a bit of a nuisance. Um, and I haven't seen the latest tweets because of the my, my workout with the mute and the block buttons, but I just tend to presume they're currently at the stage of telling us about how this surveys the work of a global cabal of paedophiles running a sex abuse ring from a pizza shop somewhere in Edinburgh. Um, and I hear there's also a secret Nazi base on the moon. Basically, they all have the same question. All these different people involved in this shambles over the last week or so have the same question. Won't somebody please think of the children? in your best Simpsons voice, you know, please think of the children. Oh my God, this is awful. We've got to protect them. We are so outraged. You know, like you can, it's almost like you can actually hear the sound of the hands ringing as, as this is all going on. Um, and to give you a sense of just how absurd it is, like the BBC website wrote a little explainer on it and it's easily one of the most boring things you're going to read this week if you go and find it. Um, like, like, dull to the point of almost being impressive, proving this is a total non-story. But one of the lines in it, you know, it said, uh, pupils as young as 14 are asked about their sexual relationships and contraception. You know, pupils as young as 14. Now, as I always tell um, my students in both my English classes and my, my journalism class, you know, your choice of words matters here, you know. So we're not going to say um, teenagers aged 14 and over are going to be asked about their sexual relationships and contraception, which sounds completely reasonable. We're going to frame it as pupils as young as 14. Be shocked. Be outraged. This is, a, this is something serious. This is a story. And the thing is, there are people I appreciate out there who are genuinely shocked by the suggestion that teenagers, you know, for want of a better phrase, do sex stuff. I'm not really sure how you could possibly be shocked by it, because at some point you were a teenager, presumably. Um, I'm not really sure how, how sheltered and naive you need to be, you know, for, for this to apply to you. Um, but lots of it is, of course, coming from this hand-wringing crowd whose problem isn't that they think these questions are um, intrusive to young people and there'll be some sort of problem for young people. The issue for them is that they find these questions embarrassing and they find them uncomfortable and they find the thought of asking teenagers this stuff just absolutely unbearable which is why of course they are not teachers um but this is essentially just you know us being asked to pander to people who are uncomfortable at reality and because they can't admit to that or cope with that they also want all of that, un that that embarrassment, that uncomfortableness, that the word I would use as somebody who, you know, I'm 35, so grew up in the like 80s and 90s, went to Catholic school, admittedly. <laughs> um, but, you know, that shame is what they want visited upon their own children now. And I really don't see any reason why um, we should be indulging them in that. A further issue with it, of course, and this is something that is a really prominent issue for Scottish education, given recent successes in this area. But there is more than a hint of old-fashioned homophobia about this. Because the real outrage very quickly became not about the existence of the survey. And yes, the, there were plenty of people on the fringes who, I mean, including some official accounts, but on the fringes whose view was um, centred around, you know, politicians want this information because they're all, you know, uh, 
uh, secret pedophiles or something like that. But actually, realistically, a lot of the issue here, a lot of the outrage and the shock and the reaction was because one of the questions asks people who are sexually active about the kind of sex they have had and the options of you know, um, vaginal, anal and oral sex. And as soon as you mention anal sex, the number of, of people whose outrage on this became centred around things like, I don't want my daughter asked about this. I don't want my children asked about anal sex. And it keeps on coming up again and again and again because the ghost of Section 28 still haunts the corridors of Scottish education um, and still haunts the corridors of Scottish society. We have done some remarkable work in Scotland on this basis. People in England who maybe haven't heard of them should look up the Thai campaign, Time for Inclusive Education. I would hope you have heard of them. And I mentioned them in my uh, in my book on the basis that actually I think this is an organisation that provides a model for other countries and for other systems. And if you ever are lucky enough to meet the people behind it, they are massively impressive and they've saved lives. They've changed the way Scottish education approaches issues around LGBT inclusive education. They have completely altered the landscape and the progress that we've made has in many cases is genuinely really a, a, a huge success story for Scottish education for such a, a, a conservative little country as the one that I live in. You know, a massive, massive success. But it doesn't mean the ghost of Section 28 is exercised. And there are still lots of people who believe that their kids should be protected from, you know, quote, deviant, for which read non-heterosexual behaviour, and still think that the school system should be used to pass on those prejudices. And these people are feeling emboldened just now due to, you know, the rise of rising anti-trans sentiment, for example, um, which is affecting various aspects of Scottish, Scottish politics, but they can't be allowed to take us backwards. We've made so much progress in this area that we simply cannot allow for that to be undone. Down that, as I say, down that road, Section 28 lies. Down that road, teenagers being put at risk lies. And we simply cannot have that. What we also really shouldn't be tolerating is the fact that so much of this is, as I already said, driven really purely by politics. Um, Alaba and the Tories are... They're, they're pursuing an increasingly angry, bitter, you know, spittle-flecked base, and they'll scrape right through the bottom of any barrel in order to do that. Um, that's very much what you what you see in Scotland just now, and it is becoming a problem around the education system. I've, I've said this, um, I said it in a recent policy conference, actually, um, hosted by a, <laughs> by a Tory MSP. Um, the logical conclusion of what these people are, are pushing for, whether it's the hand ringers or whether it's the, the bad faith manipulative politicians is that what they want is an approach best summarized by the phrase don't ask don't tell that's what they want they want don't ask don't tell amongst teenagers either because of their own you know hang-ups and idiotic sensitivities and embarrassment just simple embarrassment or simply because this is a good political angle to pursue Neither of those things are, are acceptable and the the consequence that don't ask don't tell kind of system. Where we try, where we go back and take, where we go back to making young people feel that these are not things they're allowed to ask about, that they're not things that they're allowed to know about, that would be disastrous, and it would put young people at massive, massive risk. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. This is from uh, the the recent survey that, um, and it's a thir it's thirty year old, but the most recent iteration of the Health Behaviour in School Age Children study. So, 
In 2018 in Scotland, 21% of 15-year-old boys and 19% of 15-year-old girls reported that they'd had sex. 49% of those boys and 46% of the girls um, first had sex well below the age of consent. 42% of the boys said they first had sex with someone 14 or younger. Whereas 31% of the girls said they first had sex with someone 16 or older. 20% overall reported using alcohol or drugs the first time they had sex, and just 60% reported using condoms the first time they had sex. Now, all of that may well make you incredibly uncomfortable. You might wish it weren't true or that we didn't know about it at all, even if it were true. Tough. You also might prefer if your kids weren't asked about this stuff because it would make you feel better. But your kids deserve better than that. And what's more, you don't own your kids and you don't, I don't think, have the right to put them at risk by insisting that this sort of information is withheld from them because of your personal hangups. Your sons and daughters are beyond your commands of abstinence. Look at it that way. And what matters is how we help them to, this, these are things that we've learned, you know, we should know this stuff. What matters is how we help them stay safe and how we give them the information they need to properly understand and exercise consent. That'll do much, much more good than transferring the shame of previous generations of adults are feeling onto the kids. So, the people who are howling about all this, from the failed and failing politicians to the ignorant pundits, and even, even uh, it probably shouldn't be a surprise, but even the Catholic bishops, um, are not really about trying to protect kids. This is about trying to weaponize kids. And people trying to weaponize kids don't deserve to have their views taken seriously or to get the benefit of the doubt or to have your respect. People trying to weaponize kids deserve unequivocal condemnation and rejection. And young people deserve better than to be sucked up in yet another moral panic. Whether you like it or not, your teenagers, and yes, your teenagers, are drinking and they're smoking and they're trying drugs and they're trying sex and they're engaging in activity ranging from complete safety to extreme risk. There are all sorts of issues around pressure and consent rolling around and they also have access to everything. Their knowledge is not limited by their elders at all. So I'm 35. When I was at school, people were talking about the fact that we could just look everything up on the internet. We could just go out and find pornography. And I'm 35 years old. Things are so much different now. Like orders of magnitude different. Social media and porn streaming sites in particular, those two things, but not just those two things, um, have changed the game, not just in terms of access to information um, and content, but also in terms of the kind of pressures that young people are then left feeling. And it's not in, you know, it's, it's not in spite of all that, it's because of all of that, that we need to not let them down by just burying our heads in the sand or pandering to these people who would have us, you know, wring our hands and walk away. The young people in our care need, informa need information from us. And in order for us to do that, we need information from them. And if you're sensitive, we heart can't cope with all that, or you find the questions oh so embarrassing as an adult, that's fine, but that's your problem and don't make kids pay for it. And I know there will be people angry about this and I know there are some parent, parents are upset and you're just dismissing them. But that defence 
that um, concerned parent defence is another thing being weaponised here. And it's something that is regularly weaponised once again by the kind of people who would have us bring back something like Section 28, by the kind of people who would leave young people at risk in order to make themselves feel better. And actually, I saw on Twitter a really good, um, certainly provocative, explanation of this. Um, that I've actually, it's, it's a wee short thread that I'd just like to read out um, in full, just because I really do think it gets to the heart of it. And it's from um, an account at T and Robots. So ultimately, and also, um, there is a little bit of swearing in it. So um, I have, uh, I did check, and Teacher Talk Radio is supposed to be a family-friendly location. So um, I will blank out the <laughs> those parts of it for you. Ultimately, my response to this peril-clutching health insists blank is that as someone who's worked with young people for 17 years and holds a PhD in Child and Youth Studies, I've never heard of a single time capitulating to parents' concerns would have made things better for kids. Parents as a political class, are deeply anti-child. They fundamentally, consistently operate as a pressure group devoted to opposing anything that threatens the position of privilege their own power and comfort enjoy over children's rights and well-being. Many parents fervently believe they are acting in their children's best interests when they join in the moral panic du jour. That belief changes nothing about the reality that they provably, quantifiably, are contributing to a movement that is doing the exact opposite. And because parental power is so entrenched as a social ideology, it's political suicide to even think this, let alone say it out loud. And so journalists and politicians coddle and humour these power mag bullies instead of telling them to get in the sea where they belong. <laughs> I'm just so blanking tired of watching over and over again as we have to stop every six months to entertain the ridiculous Victorian sensibilities of people who cannot possibly fathom the concept of their children's lives not being arranged specifically to their whims. Young people deserve so much more from us. They deserve, at absolute bare minimum, for leaders and pundits to stop falling over themselves in a race to give credence to those who would undermine their rights. My fellow adults, do better. And here's, you know, here's the thing, the, the realisation it came to after, after reading that earlier on. Sometimes you just need to pick a side. So on the one hand, we have hand-wringing parents and bad faith political actors. On the other hand, we have young people who we're supposed to be educating and who deserve access to information to help keep them safe. And given that choice, told to pick a side, it shouldn't be a difficult one. The young people should always come first. Something else that came up this week is um, a call from Scottish Labour that was linked to the, the budget, almost certainly goes nowhere, but raised a couple of kind of interesting points that I think are, are worth tackling here. Scottish Labour calling for 110 million a year tutoring funds to go to the 75 most deprived schools in Scotland, or the 75 poorest schools in Scotland, depending on your preferred phraseology. Why 75? Well, um, I did ask that and did, in fairness, get a response. It would focus on schools with 30% or more pupils on free school meals, which is publicly available data. Um, so we can go and find out how many schools have got more than 30% of pupils or 30% or more, I think it's actually technically, um, on free school meals. The free school meals metric is a pretty good one. It's the one that we use in Scotland for pupil equity funds, which again, for you know listeners in England, is basically just pupil premium. Um, schools get an allocation of that fund based on the number of pupils they have uh, receiving free school meals up to a certain sort of cutoff point 
in the school. It's also, interestingly, almost the same amount of money as is currently spent on pupil equity funding. So it's not a small amount of money, but I suspect the government's um, first point here would be pupil equity funding is targeted at individuals and reaches pretty much every single school in Scotland. Labour's plan seems to be to focus the money exclusively on 75 schools. As I say, using free school meals data to figure out which one, so not using um, area-based information like the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation. Basically, Labour seems to have calculated that a fifth of Scotland's schools have 30% or more on free school meals and want us to, to target tutoring help um, at them. And as I say, the percentage of people on free school meals is, is a useful metric. It's actually a metric that um, I used when we were analysing the impact of the SQA's algorithm during the 2020 or after the 2020 results scandal. And interestingly, that was work that I did with um, a guy called Barry Black, an excellent education researcher who is also involved with the Labour Party and has obviously been involved in, in this policy. So I don't think for a second that the people who are doing this, you know, don't know their numbers. But there are problems. There are some major problems, I think. Tutoring doesn't happen at school level, it happens at individual level. So to target the funding not at individuals but at schools looks clumsy at best and may well give you better headlines, but I'm not sure it gives you a better policy. Poorer pupils on free school meals at richer schools would, as far as I can tell, lose out compared to those at schools in poorer areas. So if you have, say, two pupils, both in receipt of free school meals, now one could be just and no more, you know, and the threshold to get free school meals, and one could be, you know, for argument's sake, the single poorest pupil in Scotland. If the single poorest pupil in Scotland happens to live in an area where the school they go to doesn't have 30% or more of kids on free school meals, then that kid doesn't benefit from this tutoring fund. And I'm not really sure how you present that as fair. Um, I'd be very happy if anyone listening from the Labour Party, feel free to call in um, or get in touch afterwards. But I, I don't really see how you tell, you know, that poorest people in Scotland who happens to live outside of the area of a poor school, you know, um, I don't know how you look them in the eye and tell them that this is fair, presumably because it also means that like in the schools with up to with you know, 30% or more people in free school meals, that means that up to 70% of the pupils in the schools who benefit from this fund will not be on free school meals. So it makes the ones who are, who lose out, it makes it seem even worse. And I've not had a chance to run the numbers yet, but does it even reach the majority of people on free school meals? And would the majority of people benefiting from it be on free school meals? Because I'm not even sure that's the case. Now, you may argue for all sorts of reasons that all these individual things are okay, but I think you should have answers to them. I think you should also have answers to practical concerns. Labour's idea, there is an impressive level of detail to a certain degree to this, even though some of the ones that I'm asking for are missing. So Labour's idea is that there'll be a tutor allocated to schools for every 30 students. So a school with, um, with 30 students gets one tutor, 60 students gets two tutors, six 100 students gets 20 tutors, if, if they're in a poor enough area. And superficially, I get why it sounds good. Um, people who pay for tutors do well. 
So let's parachute shooters into schools where folk can't afford them. Yeah, fine. And again, credit to Labour. Um, I can't remember the exact figure, but it was certainly 50 odd thousand pounds a year, a unit price per uh, shooter. So I presume from those kind of numbers that Labour, being Labour, in fairness, are looking for people to be paid the same rates as a teacher gets. I presume that's uh, salary and contributions after that takes up to about 50 odd grand. But that's, is that people working full time? Is that 35 hours a week? So is that seven hours a day? Are those tutors working during the school day for seven hours, taking time away from other lessons and causing problems that way? Are they tutoring at night time? Which means what, working from four to 11, five days a week? Which is one thing if you've got adults agreeing to it, are kids going to be getting tutored at nine, 10, 11 o'clock at night? Are there even enough people available to do it? Think, did I see about 2,000 tutors they reckoned it would be? Are there enough people with the right qualifications and experience for this? Because it's not even as if it's just going out to any possible teachers. Um, presumably, you're going to want subject specialists to be tutoring individual subjects. So it narrows the pool quite considerably. And I presume we're not talking about throwing 50 grand a year at either second year undergrads at universities or something like that. And surely Labour isn't suggesting that we take £110 million of public money at a time when everything's incredibly squeezed and hand it over to a private company to deliver tutoring. So some major issues with it in practical sense. But I kind of feel like maybe the biggest issue is a philosophical one. Back um, during the, Scot the Scottish elections, around about that kind of period, pretty much any kind of campaign over the last maybe year or so, one thing that you've seen is you know politicians are calling for catch-up policies, and Labour did that as well. Um, and at one point earlier, we're, we're talking about tutors, and I remember seeing it described, this call for tutors to deal with the pandemic. Um, I saw somebody else describe it as a, a private school dad solution. Um, now, for those of you who don't know, Scottish Labour's uh, leader, despite preaching the, um, you know, we're all in this together stuff, Scottish Labour's leader spends thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds a year buying a privileged education for his way in. Um, and it, there is a bit of a feeling that that is how this, this, this policy feels. You know, it feels like the kind of thing that somebody who's maybe used to throwing money at stuff, that's what they would do. They would throw money at it. But they're not asking the right questions. Because here's the thing, right? even if it was workable and even if it was practical, is it actually a good idea? Or are we going down the road here of having a policy that while it looks like it's all about helping you know, the poorest kids, is it not really about propping up the status quo? Is it not really, worst of all, getting those with least to do the most work to make that happen? And shouldn't the Labour Party <laughs> Of all people, you know, the Labour Party who loves to have a go at the SNP for, you know, being kiddie on radicals, etc. Not, not without good reason, but shouldn't the Labour Party be arguing for radical changes that might help tackle systemic inequality rather than trying to buy an incredibly expensive sticking plaster with money that presumably has to come from somewhere else? Because fundamentally, why should the poorest have to work harder in order to prop up the system that oppresses them? And what on earth is the Labour Party of all parties doing suggesting that that should be a major policy intervention for Scottish education? Uh, finally, for this section this week, um, if you were watching the updates earlier on today, you will have seen that the COVID restrictions in Scotland have been updated a little bit. 
So we were already doing all the things that um, that Boris Johnson was so desperate to avoid. You're still supposed to wear face masks in places up here and things like that. Um, but over the last kind of week or maybe into two weeks, Nicola Sturgeon's been increasingly clear about wanting, you know, um, more home working, for example. We have been urged to, yesterday by Public Health Scotland, to postpone Christmas parties. Colleges have also been told they have to go back fully online. Is this a case of here we go again, heading into Christmas? I mean, was it Tuesday? Um, the National Clinical Director said he thought schools would close due to Omicron outbreaks. And nobody, at least yet, expects full-scale physical closures. But then again, <laughs> um, nobody expected it the last couple of times either. Now, obviously, it's something that going to want to avoid. You know, Nicola Sturgeon really did stress today, in fairness to her, you know, that she'll try and avoid um, you know, school closures or disruption to education. But there are a couple of things here. Firstly, it's, it, I think it's important when we're looking at this as an education issue to remember it isn't just an education issue. You know, teachers are good at telling um, other people that the things that affect schools, and I do it as well, the things that affect schools don't happen in a vacuum. Schools don't exist in isolation, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all absolutely true. And when we say that to explain why, you know, uh, to explain issues around, say, variations in exam results. But it kind of goes both ways. The issue here is that massively increasing numbers present a risk beyond just the immediate concern. They, be, they present a risk beyond just the immediate individual. They present a risk beyond just that immediate, for example, hospitalization. And as Nicholas Sturgeon kind of repeated today, there is, for example, a clear risk to the to NHS capacity from a massive increase in case numbers because Omicron looks as though it is enormously um, more successful at spreading. And there is some suggestion it may provoke a milder disease in most people. There's no guarantee of that yet, just to be clear. Um, but even if it does, a small percentage of a larger number can still be a very, very, very big number. So if it increases the spread at a rate that's high enough, it doesn't matter if the disease, the disease sorry, is milder. The pressure on the NHS and everywhere else will be the same. So that's an important aspect of this that we shouldn't ignore. I don't think, um, I don't think it's appropriate or reasonable to just completely rule out school closures on the basis that they are harmful. Because a collapsing NHS, for example, brought about by a refusal to introduce any sorts of different um, restrictions would be, you know, clearly a, a bigger problem. So while nobody wants to see schools closed, I don't want to see, you know, my wee boy missing school any more than he has um, over the last, what, what are we at now, 8,000 years or whatever it is. Um, it is important that we understand that these are, are whole society issues. The other thing, though, to understand, Nicholas Sturgeon made a big deal today about wanting to avoid disruption to education. There's already been major disruption to education. There is ongoing disruption to education. Um, pupils and staff have been and are continuing to isolate. Schools have been having to manage outbreaks, in some cases having to close temporarily. So there's this already been this huge disruption to what's going on in the classroom. And for the most part, ultimately, the situation is that, you know, it will just need to be coped with because there simply isn't an alternative. And as pupils, you know, my, my wee boy is uh, in primary three now, he started the pandemic in primary one, he did all of primary two during it, and it's a million miles from that, from ideal. 
But there's no alternative, you know, we can't wish a pandemic away. So we get through it. But it's different at the top end of high school. Because at the top end of high school, we've got the system set up as such that it is very, very much high stakes, do it now, get it right. And you either do it or that's that. So you would like to think there'd be at least a lot of planning going into what's happening at the end of schools. Basically, for what we call the senior phase in Scotland, exam students. Um, people who have perhaps followed past FOI stories about the Scottish Government or past stories about the government's uh, handling of COVID probably aren't going to be surprised to find out it isn't the case. I recently FOI'd the government and asked them for detail, like, details and trigger points of like how they would handle this. Effectively, I was saying to them, you know, this was a few months ago, they had just said, if, if it's safe to do so, we'll go ahead with exams. So I said, right, okay. Um, how are you measuring that, basically? You know, what's the trigger? What's the point at which you're going to stop and say, right, let's look at the data. What is the thing that would get you to say, you know, um, we, need to, we need to do something about this? Because you would think the lesson would have been learned that you have to do things early. Last year, the SNP and the SQA delayed and delayed and delayed. They cancelled one set of exams in October, but waited a couple of months to do the next one. That was followed immediately by the holidays and then by a lockdown and online learning, and it created absolute chaos. So you would think that at least in a learn this year, you've got to act early in education, act early and do things properly. But no, no, nothing at all. There are no trigger points that I could tell from the response. The best I could figure out was that the government reckons it'll be fine if they need to cancel exams right up until the end of, and I'm very, very sorry, teachers in Scotland, if you're hearing this for the first time from me, but right up until the end of March 2022. So everybody can see there's potential disruption coming. Nobody knows what to do about it. There's stories of extensive um, assessments going on in schools, extra prelims because nobody trusts the SQA after what's happened in the last couple of years. And it's all really because we have refused to learn any lessons from the last two years. Or I say we, every teacher I know, every pupil I've spoken, every student, pretty much every parent was, was up for learning those lessons. The people in charge haven't learned these lessons because they didn't want to. They want the status quo back. They could have learned lessons, they've refused. And remember, not a single senior phase pupil in Scotland has been through a normal exam cycle. Not one. Not like all the current sixth years, you know, who were in fourth year a couple of years ago when everything kicked off. None of them have been through a normal exam cycle. So it's not as if you're taking them out of something midway through. We could have reset here. This was the opportunity to do something excellent, but the people in charge wanted things back to normal, and their version of normal is things being manageable. Middle-class kids doing well as middle-class kids are supposed to do, working-class kids not doing as well as working-class kids are supposed to do. The natural order of things is restored, and the bell curve is reinstated for the people who desperately want it. So there's a wee summary of just three of the major issues affecting Scottish education this week, and uh, just in a moment, we'll be talking to Paul Hamilton about how he goes about teaching legal studies in a secondary school in Scotland. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more, 
and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Scottish Parliament has debated the usefulness of national ventilation guidance for schools. There have been concerns that basic measures such as opening windows is unsustainable with winter just starting and the new Omicron threat. Labour Education spokesperson Michael Mara said that the current mitigations were not enough. He stated, I know the government are committed to expanding outdoor learning. I would suggest there are better ways to go about it than bringing the Scottish winter indoors. Mr Mara is calling for two portable air purifiers to be installed in every classroom. Harvard University research has suggested that their use could reduce transmission rates of airborne virus by 50%. In Ethiopia, the Ministry of Education has decided to close all secondary schools for one week to allow students to harvest crops for those on the front line of the war. They will also be fundraising for members of the military, assisting families of those on the front line and giving blood. The Minister of Education said, it is impossible to live without a country and everyone has a responsibility to protect their country. The education sector must fulfil its national responsibilities. More than 1.2 million students are out of school due to the ongoing war in northern Ethiopia. In Tanzania, the government has announced that it will lift a ban which prevents girls from returning to school after childbirth. The ban has been controversial, with activists calling it discriminatory, and the leader of the opposition, ACT Wazalendo Party, received death threats when he wrote to the World Bank asking them to withhold a loan to the government because of the policy. The founder and executive director of ACOA New Generation an organisation building capacity for girls who dropped out of school because of pregnancy, said, Most of the girls who get pregnant in school lack basic sexual education. As we commend this development, the most important step now is to invest in more sexual education and increase awareness among students about the impact of teen pregnancies and child marriages and encourage them to remain in schools. Tanzania has now become one of the last two countries in Africa to lift the ban against pregnant schoolgirls from accessing education. Only Equatorial Guinea still maintains the policy. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Hi everybody and welcome back. So we're going to be talking just now to um, someone I've, I've uh, had a few chats with in the past, certainly. Um, he is a, a teacher in Scotland. I um, first met him 
bizarrely because of a story I was working on um, to do with, with um, four uh, war graves in the cemetery around the corner from me. Um, but very interesting guy. And he's going to um, come on and tell us about a project that, as I say, I featured in my book and that I've found uh, fascinating since I first um, since I first heard about it. So, um, are you there, Paul? Uh, good evening, James. Can you hear me okay? I can indeed. How are you doing? <laughs> not, not bad, not bad. This is a, this is a very different Friday night, having to, having to be a good boy and being my sort of best behaviour, but uh, I'm ah. here. I'm here. <laughs> Stay sober for now, at least that'd be grand. Eh? Yeah, semi-sober at least, yeah. <laughs> so um, can you just tell everybody, um, t- who are you? Tell us who you are, right. of, um, what's going on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm Paul Hamilton. As uh, as James said, uh, I'm a teacher in the uh, secondary schools. Have been teaching now for about thirteen years, and uh, really to trade, uh, I'm a history teacher. I've taught history for probably ten, eleven of those sort of thirteen years in comprehensive secondary schools in in the west of Scotland. Um, but the thing that makes me not completely unusual, but maybe just slightly unusual, is that prior to uh, studying history at uh, university and then going on to subsequently become a, a history teacher, uh, I, I studied and gained a law degree. Um, and I'm one of many who didn't go on into practice. I was never a solicitor. Um, I, for, for various reasons, I, I, I could bore you about nothing, nothing scandalous, just it wasn't for me and I decided to uh, pursue something else. Um and then when I came into to teaching, um, I, I don't know, I, I'd like to say up here in Scotland, we've, we've got modern studies. Um, I don't think that's a subject down south, actually, probably just politics, I could be wrong. Uh, and I used to think maybe that law was covered fairly sort of fully within modern studies, but it's absolutely no disrespect intended. It was, it was not the law that I sort of, recognised from when I done my law degree. Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I uh, uh, basically, as, as I'll go on to say, went on to, to now teach legal studies uh, in the secondary school and, and I'm sort of trying my best slowly to pick away um, at the system to, to kind of try and align it with what I think exists down south where, whereby you can have the, the A-level in law and I would like to see something quite quite similar up here so that, that's probably a wee bit about about me and, and like James I'm, I'm one of the, um, uh, the the pleasant but grumpy souls in Scottish education uh, we're, all, we're always cheery aren't we James? Ah, absolutely yeah funnily I've, I just realised actually I don't know how I've forgotten this but um, my second head of department when he came in when I was still in Aaron um, I'm sure it was law that he did and then went into be an English teacher. There must be something about being a lawyer that makes people realise they want to be teachers. Uh, but he used to mention that as well. There wasn't really anything about about the law, particularly in, in the curriculum and how it bothered him. That is you know, that way things just pop into your head as somebody talks, you know. Um, I need to put you in touch. But tell us then, what's the... So legal studies, you've said, you know, you're teaching this thing in schools. It's obvious from what you've said there. It's a, it's, um, it's something a bit different. It's not a natural or, or standard part of our curriculum, obviously. So can you explain what it involves. Yes, yeah, so I teach what is uh, commonly referred to as an NPA, uh, which stands for the, the National Progression Award. Um, and it's taught at level six, which is the equivalent of a, a higher qualification in Scotland. And it's something and c- that... Words, council at uni point and stuff like that, yeah? Uh, absolutely, but but I'll, I'll sort of swing back round. It doesn't have a grade. 
So you, you, you pass or fail, basically, and I'll, and I'll come back to why that is. That's the only really thing that differentiates it in terms of a what would be a higher level six a qualification up here, um, which has slight repercussions when it comes to things like UCAS and UCAS specify, you know, you, you need a grade A or B to get into this course. But um, so anyway, as I was saying, it was it's a national progression award in legal studies that had been until sort of I came along, <laughs> stomped my feet. Um, it had only been taught in the, the, the college um, sector, if that's the right way of putting it, um, either by students who were studying themselves at college because they were interested in a, a career in paralegal or themselves trying to work towards the, the LLB, the law degree, or it was also offered or is also offered uh, as part of school partnerships, this sort of consortium working whereby senior pupils would would maybe get to go to college certain afternoons of the week uh, and study legal studies. But um, I was fortunate enough through a lot of amazing people that have helped me that we, we got approval from the, the SQA, the, the, the Scottish Qualifications Authority up here, um, to actually run this in school, in-house. And, and now I'm in my second year of offering the qualification and there is now one other school um, who's since had approval and offering it at the moment and there's it seems to be there's quite a sort of a build-up of other schools behind us um, kind of following our lead and we, we think we're on the verge of something quite quite exciting as far as law in schools is concerned. So when I mean, you say obviously it's something that's usually done in colleges, which I mean I understand because I'm an FE teacher, so these are the kind of students that would usually do that, or as you say, adults kind of self-motivated um, in a form of education where they are you know, choosing to be there. Your environment is something quite different, obviously. So what's the situation? I think, you know, one of the things people sometimes assume about these kind of courses, um, the, the, the non-hire equivalents to hire and stuff like that is that they are either they're just dead easy and people just stroll through them or students basically just do them to waste some time on their timetable which you know for me for example that was a uh, higher accounts and finance sorry mr stone um so i suppose like what's what kind of students is it that you're attracting to the course um and are there any I mean, do you have entry requirements or are you interviewing people and are you ending up with the students who, as I say, have got some time to fill or is it students who are really passionate about law or is it maybe other kinds of students as well? Um, it's, it's quite a mixed bag in terms of answering that. Um, I've, I've So when I ran the course in the first year, we had um, high 20s in terms of pupil um a selection of the course and it's the same this year I think we're about 28 29 the current class that I have um, and really one thing that I have argued not just in the school where I teach in terms of the offering of this course but something moving forward when, when I have sort of bigger plans is that legal studies as a course is called or, or law um, I don't view it as a vocational subject um, in a sense, you know, I, I don't believe that young people pick maths because they want to become mathematicians or, or do art because they want to become artists. I think it's that they want to experience, you know, that particular curricular area and get the skills that they can from it. So I, I offer it as a six year subject, um, which is our final year before most young people go off to either university, college or, or, or uh, employment. And uh, I, I, last year we had in the class uh, two young people who, you know, from the outset wanted to study 
law and, and they actually were successful and they got places at a law school and are, are now in their first year and this year it's quite similar as well. I think there's two, maybe three off the top of my head who at the moment are putting in their UCAS applications to, to study the, the LLB degree. So by no means am I trying to bring up a, a sort of a an army of, of young lawyers or anything like that. What, what I am trying to do um, because I'm a history teacher to trade and social subjects and humanities is the sort of backbone of what I do is I'm trying to promote social justice and, and critical thinking, which really is the heart, I believe, of of law and, and of legal studies. So the young people, generally speaking, are quite quite usually tuned in and, and already are, you know, showing an interest in politics, sociology, history, or, you know, any of the kind of humanity type subjects um, tends to be the, the sort of the way of it. And I should also say criminology, um, Similarly, we, we now at the school, although I don't teach it directly at the moment, uh, we all, also offer the NP in criminology and we, we work in partnership and we do quite kind of bounce off each other there. See, that's, it's very interesting because I think one of the things um, people might also assume, you know, a school that's offering um, a qualification, but as you say, even if you don't view it as a, a strictly vocational thing, it's not hard to see how it might be something that would be of interest to people who are wanting to go and do law. So I suppose some people might be assuming, making certain assumptions about the area in which you teach Paul um, that perhaps you're teaching in a you know a, a leafy suburb like Bears Den or Mulgai or somewhere like that um, is that the case <laughs> no no I've, I've uh, I, I wear it as a badge of honor and I shouldn't because if people pick me up wrong I was involved in a bit of a Twitter spat last weekend uh, where I was um, having a go at uh, our league tables which came out recently and James I know you you sort of jumped on one of these tweets um I I, I would very proudly say um I, I've never taught in a leafy suburb and, and I apologize to so many of my colleagues who might take offense at that because they'll say that as perhaps a backhanded <laughs> thing but I, I assure I assure you I do not work in a I work in a very um a comprehensive environment with as many challenges as you would want to throw at it um, and I couldn't be prouder of the young people I teach and I mean and I know every teacher genuinely says that but um, the young people I'm lucky enough to, to work with day in day out they, they punch um, I don't even want to say well above their weight because that's patronising they just bloody punch they, they, they get the job done yeah and so okay so um, we're not talking about a bunch of you know middle class children of lawyers and doctors here coming into a legal studies um, course we're not looking at a course that is typically part of the curriculum was previously kind of only delivered in uh, in colleges doesn't follow the same kind of format um, as other kind of courses either and uh, you said when you started talking that doesn't have an exam so I think that is something that will interest people because again people might be making assumptions that a legal studies course that is maybe intended for people who might want to go and do these kind of things you know um you know, this is competitive and how are these people going to get into Glasgow University if you don't, or, or Strathclyde University, if you don't, you know, put an exam at the end of this course. So can you tell us how the assessment works? And I should probably sort of clarify again for people who maybe are outside of Scotland here. Scotland is um, a very, very, very exam-focused country in terms of of qualifications you know one of the comments from there um just to come into the show there um from drew Brett. but how can you not have an exam i should point out drew is being facetious he's one of the people um i would recommend to you all um who has come up with some brilliant alternative ideas but it's a country very very much still enthralled to the idea that at the end of the year 
if you don't have the students all sitting down in rows writing things on paper under timed conditions etc etc then you you know something has gone horribly wrong how does your um how does your legal studies non um, national progression award sorry how's that assessed for so it's the way it's the way <laughs> That's forward. <a> good start. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of um, Peter Kay, you know, I, I, dare I do the impersonation of Peter Kay in Phoenix Night where he's tasted the garlic bread and he says it's the future. Um, but that's that's kind of how I, I, I feel now that I've, I've taught an MPA. Um, we, 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 we don't have what I believe is really unfair and unjust about our education system in this course and that we don't have a high stakes, high percentage end exam. You know, I mean, I, I, I jump between two spheres because I then, you know, spend a large part of my day as a history teacher, whereby the end exam is 70% down to and how you, you spend a lot of your time, that. like the rest of us, coaching students yeah. through exams instead of teaching them the subject. Yes, yep. absolutely. Um, so the NPA in legal studies is is ongoing assessment. And don't get me wrong, that, 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 that doesn't, that's not without its challenges, particularly, should I say, during COVID. It's probably worth mentioning that I launched this course during COVID. And uh, that's been that's been a brain ache <laughs> at times, as as everything has at this time period. But we we do ongoing assessments, uh, which there is an element of autonomy for the, the teacher or the lecturer delivering the course that you can you know decide when it will be sat, and there's certain arrangements and conditions that you can be somewhat flexible about, uh, and that, that allows you, especially during the COVID period, because you know yourself, you know the young people in front of you, you know who when they're ready. And when, you know, you would hope that they're going to perform yeah. to the, the best of their ability as opposed to, you know, it's going to be guys the 2nd of May and, uh, you know, it's going to be 9 o'clock to 10.30. And I'm sorry if, um, you know, you, you had COVID the week before, but that's, that's kind of what it is. Um, so, yeah, yeah we, we, this we, is how we, we do the ongoing assessment. <laughs> yeah. Um, but th there will be problems. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't pretend that this is the you know the, the absolute answer but what i do see is it's a damn sight fairer it's a damn sight fairer it's it's more difficult as a teacher because you have a, a, a huge huge amount more of kind of admin and collecting assessment you know information and recording of that and whatnot i don't pretend that for a second but if you're you know at the risk of being all kind of cliched and gushing here if you're doing it for the young people then it's fairer, and I and I, I feel like a, a a nicer human being when I deliver that, as opposed <laughs> to when I deliver the high stakes exam. Is the issue possibly as well that so the ongoing assessment thing, as you say, it's, there's more work involved. You're gathering more things in, but could the issue perhaps be that it is that the system isn't set up for that? So to, to explain what I mean, I teach these kind of courses in the college. A lot I teach the higher and I teach the national five English. But I also teach courses that count as an equivalent, say, one that counts as an equivalent to higher English, but has no exam. So people who want to be teachers in Scotland, for anybody who's not here, you need to have a higher English. You need to have passed higher English. And if you haven't passed higher English, then you're tough. With the exception, you can go and do this other course called NC Communication with Literature 1. And I teach that course. It's actually a better course than the higher. But it's um, ongoing assessment. It doesn't have a final exam. I decide who passes, well, I slash, you know, the college verification procedures decide who, who passes and fails. And it is, there is more work involved in terms of the, you know, taking the work in as, as we go. I kind of agree with you on that, Paul. But I wondered if, when I moved into the college sector and then started doing these courses, I remember thinking that actually, I think part of the reason they work quite well in colleges might simply be that colleges are set up for them. 
so so like the we don't teach in let's say 50 minute blocks you teach in like two and a half and three hour blocks and stuff like that and it just seems that it gives that little bit more space and makes it flow more easily and i only ask that in terms of do you think perhaps the reason that the the non-exam courses look like so much extra work just now may actually just be because the system has turned so much towards the exam courses that it makes everything else more difficult than it should be I think that <laughs> I, I, I think I think the time period we're living in distorts everything. <laughs> um, I, I I think you know it, it would be the politest way I can put it is everything is it, it sort of turned on its head. And and you're right there that the the, the NPA uh, type courses you're saying there uh, it's a sort of a logistical thing. I I still do feel um, and we're not the only NPA in the school that I teach. There's criminology, photography. I, I think there's psychology possible that's yep. higher but they're, 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 so I'm, I'm not new I'm not an innovator in that sense in what we're doing but we still see you still feel slightly like a bolt-on um yeah because it's not, and amongst it's not the standard uh-huh and yeah. there, there are there are concerns as well and if my boss is listening to this um she'll she'll murder me but tough I'll see it um with, with something as specific as what I am doing you know if I go off sick there's no one else <laughs> There's, you know, that that so that you quite often find with these very, what I would say is a specialised course up here. Um, I, I'm really curious actually if anyone passes this uh, when it's in podcast form onto law teachers down south. I actually really want to try and connect with some law teachers. That's a selfish that'd appeal. Be, um, no, it'd be lovely though. It'd be, it'd be yeah. interesting to find out. Mm-hmm. But, but, so, what, yeah, I was, I was just going to say that, that, that we that adds to the sense that it can be slightly a bit of a bolt on because you, you you're sort of doing it yourself. Um, but then that's quite lovely as well as a teacher because you get a huge amount of autonomy. Dare I say that as well? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I've got a couple of messages coming in as well. So one um, from Robbie who says that they do the NPA in applied science and it isn't as respected as discrete sciences that have exams. That would be a similar kind of issue, obviously, to maybe National 4 compared to National 5, even though they're different levels. But um, And we've got one from Lindsay saying that she thinks the NPAs are actually easier to manage because she's not stressing that the kids aren't ready for prelims, unit assessments, reports, assignments, when you can't control the dates, um, and preparing work at home for those with poor attendance, etc. And I, I, I can kind of get that, because that's something that I do with, with my courses. And I, I, you, mm-hmm. can, you were kind of suggesting you can do it as well, where that kind of flexibility you can have to decide, for example, like I was going to do this outcome assessment in two weeks' time, but actually, yeah. I don't think they're quite up for it yet. Some things have happened. That assembly happened. Is it? So actually, I'm going to move it a couple of days later. I'm going to change the way we do it a little bit mm-hmm. just to make like that kind of freedom can make a big yeah, difference. I mean, it's obviously it's, what a lot of people think of as being a weakness as well, though. No, it's, it's I mean, it's beautiful. Um, but it really is, especially where because I'm quite a kind of passionate humanities type teacher. And uh, I, I like to really kind of go with the flow in terms of what's happening in society as well. So, you know, something could sort of break over the weekend and I suddenly think, well, you know, all of a sudden, hmm, why are the Met not investigating Boris Johnson for a house party? Right, okay, let's 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 discuss that on Monday. Um, so that 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 autonomy is, I think, is built in as well because you have that that kind of less rigid flexibility. Um, I was just going to pick up before I forget as well Robbie's point when he put in there. Um, I I agree with that. It pains me to agree with what he said about the the kind of how NPAs might not have as much respect. I would potentially argue that it's because they are pass-fail rather than ABC. Um, And I think that's a whole system 
thing that, that will take time. I think it's like you said about the National Four that we have here. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I want... Um, I, I want in Scotland a, a higher in law and a national five in law and a national four and so on and so forth, um, because I, 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 for lots of reasons, because I, I think law is a hugely valid subject and, and it's not vocational. And as I say, you don't just necessarily pick law because you want to be a lawyer. That's nonsense. By that logic, I would never pick chemistry at school because I never wanted to be a chemist. Um, so I, I think a lot of it is to do with the. The, the, the freeing is up from getting us away from exams because we live in such an exam heavy kind of um, society in terms of that's the way we grew up and that's what we went through that people are less likely to place a great deal of respect upon it I think is how I might, might potentially argue that one James Yeah I think that certainly makes sense um, as it, you know, Scotland's a very as I say all the time to people Scotland's a very conservative country Scottish education is acutely um, conservative as well which is, is um, a major problem at times and it does make it difficult to, to sometimes you know to push for these kind of changes or to, to, to make a kind of a solid argument around you know I think that we should do an approach that doesn't maybe depend quite so heavily on this thing that we do where we grind the students through exams every single year and we, we kind of hedge all of our bets on that and interestingly like we've I think people sometimes forget because so much has happened that we've actually gone more down that direction in recent years you know, so like um, when the new qualifications were introduced, for example, the previously existing appeals system was taken away and now Scotland has no actual appeals system. It used to be the case that if someone you know, went into the exam hall and got a C and they've been getting an A all the way through the year and you had lots and lots and lots of evidence, as you obviously would do for that, you could send it off and everything, um, and you could get the grade re-looked at. We took all that away, we took unit assessments away, admittedly because they've become an absolute nightmare. So it really is very much, you know... Um, it is the exam or bust and it's that exam or, or bust. And it's interesting to hear from someone like yourself who's teaching this completely different style, a much more, say, as somebody like myself as a kind of college lecturer, what you're describing sounds very much like the kind of things that I do on a day-to-day -day basis in the college as well. Um, and it's interesting to hear not just the kind of success that you feel it's having, but also that kind of, I don't know, there's a kind of hint there that you feel that there's a little bit of... Um, sort of like systemic resistance to the idea of doing it? Would that be accurate? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's... Um, and, I, and not to say I probably there might be things where I possibly could fall into the trap. I don't know with other, you know, scenarios in life. But I, I can't help but feel that people who have suffered through exams themselves um, think, well, I did it. So the young people of today can do it. Yeah, so they should have really, to do it as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that really kind of, you said it's a family-friendly show, so I pick my words very carefully, but that really does rile me. I mean, it, <laughs> it really does um, because um, I, 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 there's nothing about the NPAs that I would describe as easy. I, I would describe them as fairer as you know has been more aligned with you know the, the needs of the young people that ultimately the qualification is for that, that doesn't mean that they they are easier um but that goes to the heart james we could have a whole show talking about the qualification system in this country we could. And, and to be fair that's my very last seg uh, segment yeah. today. i don't want to preempt too much of that certainly um 
but I mean, it's it's really interesting to have you on and, and talking about that. And can I just ask then? So just uh, before we kind of wrap it up and we and we move on, how how successful do you think it's been? You're in your second year. You launched it during a pandemic. You're doing a course that isn't, you know, as we say, the kind of standard thing. It hadn't been done in in schools before that you that you were aware of. Um, you know, how's it how's it gone? How successful has it been? And has it changed your your view on anything? Um, I mean, well, <laughs> selfishly, if I was just to think about me as a teacher, it has um, it has perked me up. That, yep. <laughs> it's perked me up uh you know i i i, I do love teaching I, I sometimes don't get me wrong it drives me absolutely bonkers uh anyone on my twitter would, would would quickly pick up on that um it's kind of invigorated me and you know sparked a bit of a a bit of a passion that maybe was starting to to wane a bit just beaten down a bit by you know the the daily goings on and we know how hard it can be at times so in that sense selfishly for me it's been it's been great i, I love now jumping between sort of two worlds it feels like when I'm a history teacher period one and a, a law teacher period two that's that's been brilliant um I think the young people um I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth I think have enjoyed the course uh, this year and the last I think also they've coped incredibly well because I actually launched the course online I remember the first one you know when I met the class for the first ever time it was on Google Meet and you know we should have by now have been to one of the local universities we should have been at least at the high court and the sheriff court for visits and any speakers we've had in the classes have, have always had to come in and speak to us on Zoom so but yeah, they've 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 smiled and, and they've done well and a lot of the young people I've I can only kind of share sort of qualitative kind of feedback has, has been really nice. Um, and, you know, I feel quite humble about what I've heard and I, I feel quite positive. I think the fact that the, we have a capacity of 30 um, in the school and, we, you know, we're operating now at sort of, I think it was roughly 28 last year and about 28 this year. Um, they've came back, <laughs> so we didn't put them off in the first year. And also as well didn't on well, Twitter... Didn't we um, not to do it then? No. <laughs> uh, on, on, on Twitter, um, I've had tremendous amounts of, you know, really quite humble and interest from other teachers who've seen what we do because we, we, we tweet from, again, shameless self-promotion, yes. CHS Legal Studies, and uh, they, they want to run it in their schools. And it's been incredible as well. The, dime, the kind of range of leafy suburbs to, you know, proper working class comprehensives <laughs> who want to get this into their school. So, yeah, I, I would say, James, I, I think it's been a success and uh, I, I'm quite happy to, to say that, yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Um, it's it Really, it's, it sounds like a cracking course. It's one of these things, obviously, COVID just now, you can't, can't do anything. Um, it's one of these things that when I, was, when I was writing the book and I was writing about it, I was kind of sitting going, it's just... It's the kind of thing, you know, I really love you know, what I'm going to see, you know, um, what I'm going to actually see how it's done and stuff like that. If, if nothing else, because actually I'm really curious about these, what sounds to me like a very uh, clear and workable and potentially powerful link between the systems that are currently used by further education and the systems that are used by schools. And I can see how that might take us next time into a conversation about how you organise the senior phase and do we need sixth form colleges and all that kind of stuff. So um, a good start. Thank you for being the, the first guest and thanks very much for giving up uh, some of your time on a Friday night to come in and join us. 
No, it's a pleasure. I, um, I can go to the pub now before they get shut, I suppose. <laughs> yes, I, if you can make it in, um, then best of luck with that. Thanks very much, Paul. <laughs> Cheers, James. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. And we'll be back in uh, just a minute to have a quick discussion before we finish about issues around exam reform in Scotland. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. So thanks very much to Paul for coming in and joining us. And uh, thanks to everybody, every people actually, you know, listening in live, got some messages coming in, which is uh, great to see. Obviously, for anybody who's um, maybe listening, having seen this maybe on my Twitter feed or something like that and listening through the Teacher Talk radio website, you can you can do that. Um, if you wanted to take part in the shows, if you sign up for a Podbean account, you can not only send me messages, but you can actually call into the show as well. And, you know, maybe not for a first show, just in case the technical gremlins all, all come roaring out at that stage. But it's certainly something that I would be very interested in um, and I was doing it in a, a kind of a, a future point. So I'll keep that in mind and maybe we could try and organise something like that in the future. But a Podbean account would let you interact with the show um, as well. And thank you again to the people who've done that. So last segment up today, uh, and Paul kind of touched on it there, but there is um, an ongoing debate in Scotland just now about the issue of exam reform. And while this is something that is not unique to Scotland, certainly, and even in response to the pandemic is, is not unique to Scotland, there is um, particular enthusiasm for it just now, which I think is worth looking at and um, thinking about some of the particular angles of it, because there are some surprising aspects of it. One of them is that Scottish education has been through basically continuous upheaval for a decade. Um, we've, we're, in, we're about a decade on sort of from the, the points at which CFE, Curriculum for Excellence, for those of you um, who never got your shiny green folder, um, and when it was being implemented. And in that period, it's been pretty constant and pretty full on. You know, um, the, the versions of the curriculum have changed several times. Whole new qualifications were introduced. They were introduced very, very, very badly. They've since been reformed. Um, we have had the actual building blocks of the curriculum are called the experiences and outcomes. There are a thousand of them and it's completely unmanageable. So the government decided to streamline them by breaking them down into an even larger number at some points of benchmarks. It's It's been chaos, you know, and then along comes a pandemic and emergency online learning and, all, and everything that came with it, you know. You would be forgiven um, for thinking that if you asked people in Scottish education just now, what if there was some sort of reform they were interested in, you'd be forgiven for thinking that they would just think you were insane. But actually, when you ask people in Scottish education just now, you know, are there any maybe things that you think we could change? The most common answer that you get is some sort of variation on pretty much everything. And it's fascinating 
because again, a teaching profession that is, you know, points quite conservative and a teaching system that's very, an education system certainly that's, that's very conservative. But there's a big push for change just now, a really big push. And it's because of the pandemic. It's because the pandemic has shown us, it has exposed some of the major weaknesses in the system. It has provoked discussions around all sorts of things from the school starting age at one end of the of the school system right up to the way in which we examine kids at the end and that I think has probably been the most high profile and emotive part of it so far the reason being the 2020 results scandal so um, I guess an interesting one this because obviously if, if people are listening from England you lot did all this too you just did it a week after us so in 2020 um the, the exams were cancelled, government decided that it, there'd be a system put in place in order to, let's not kid ourselves on, manipulate uh, teachers' assessments of their students in order to make sure that too many poor kids didn't do too well. So that algorithm essentially restricted the grades that a kid could get based on the past results of their school. And we know that you know, a school's results are tied to the socioeconomics of its cohort. So by doing it that way, as I say, long story short, we couldn't let too many poor kids do too well. It would cause problems in the system. So it had to be, it had to be controlled. The results went out. Thousands of kids had been downgraded because of the postcodes. They were essentially being told by the government that their postcode was destiny. Um, and unsurprisingly, people weren't happy. Unsurprisingly, the young people weren't happy, and to their eternal credit, the young people simply refused. Um, they protested, they demanded changes, and they got it, and John Swinney was forced into his humiliating apology before Parliament. After that, I mean, we had a, a, the whole chaos last year, demonstrated attainment. Um, and this is, you know, some of the people have just sent a message there talking about the SQA. Again, if you're not from Scotland, um, the history of the SQA is essentially uh, the Scottish Qualifications Authority, the only one. We don't have several examples. We have one national one. And the history of the SQA is essentially a potted history of variations of incompetence. Um, so there was a catalyst that came from that, certainly. And then the OECD did a review of Scottish education and pointed out what everybody already knew, or at least everybody who knows what they're talking about, that Scotland has curriculum for excellence, which runs from primary one basically until the end of the third year of secondary school. And then we're supposed to have a senior phase that builds on what comes before. And the two are basically entirely disconnected. And the reason for this is because when Scotland reformed its curriculum along the lines of curriculum for excellence, the people involved were too scared to get into actually updating exams and assessment and the correct term for all end of school certification for the 21st century. The OECD now, you know, as well as not just, you know, mad lefties like me, um, also now, you know, saying this isn't working, this isn't aligned, you need a fairly major reform to happen here. And there are obvious issues. In Scotland, we have this annual grind through exams. It's completely unnecessary. We, in fourth year, fifth year, and second year of secondary school, we grind kids through exams. We make it so that their entire final three years of secondary school are defined by the run-up to those exams. We waste an enormous amount of time every year coaching them for those exams. Because if you imagine, if you've got, say, what is it, about nine months, eight months, nine months of teaching in total, 
how much of that teachers listening you know how much of that do you think you spend on past papers and question samples and all that kind of stuff and in prelims and then on cramming before it etc etc how much time in every single year do you think you blow on preparing the kids for the exam as opposed to teaching them the course and when you do that three times in a row how much time disappears with all of that. It's unnecessarily high stakes and high pressure if you compare our exam system that, as I say, says you do it on that day at that time or we will condemn you and you will fail. Compare that to the driving test, which is about the most high stakes test that most people will ever sit because after you after, after you pass that, we'll let you throw around a few tons of metal at speeds that would liquidize somebody if you hit them. Um, but you don't have to sit that at the same time. Everyone doesn't have to sit that at the same time, at the same place every single year. You can wait until you're ready to sit that. You can have as many resets as you like. We haven't incorporated any of that into any aspect of our assessment system. And we have been left with the worst of all possible worlds as a consequence of it. Are there ideas for change? There are loads of ideas for change. Huge amounts of alternatives. Some of them come from the SQA, as you've heard from Paul earlier on. Some of them are the things that I teach that are all SQA courses, but we teach in colleges that do not work the same kind of way, but are still counted as equivalent. Um, I've got a message actually here from Drew in the chat, in the text coming in. Plenty of viable alternatives exist that could be employed to assess and certificate, ideally at the end of secondary school and not every year for three years. Drew has also himself, you know, um, put forward suggestions before on possible ways of assessing in his subject, which is physics. In mine, I, I mean, I've laid it out in my book certainly recently, but there's there are things that I would do that would completely reform the approach to English assessment. And I should stress here, I don't know a single English teacher who would not change the current hire. The course does we have it just now in the way that we assess and certificate young people and even if we we're going to stay with individual subjects i genuinely do not know an english teacher who would not change the current approach and that is the same when you speak across different subjects what you do notice is there are variations more math te math teachers tend to be more in favor of holding on to something that looks more like it is just now because they feel it suits them Science teachers um, have a different view on certain kinds of end of year um, high stakes assessment windows than maybe like an English teacher like me does who wants to teach people how to write and how to be able to use those skills in the real world. But science teachers also often talk about the need for actual proper practicality into the final assessments because it's a huge part of their subject area and one that is sometimes um, underappreciated. So there's a huge range of different possible ideas and you'd like to hope that we're, this is us going to get them because we have a review going on. It's been led, but it's just about to finish. The, the consultation's finished, been led by a guy called Ken Muir and it sounds like it's all going to be great, but the fear is this, just as we finish. The fear is that this is a, re a review that's been designed to constrain reform and not to enable it. The review was announced on the day the OECD report came out, basically at exactly the same time, and changed the headlines which was the point it made the headlines sqa to be scrapped after all the controversy that had come beforehand sqa to be scrapped became the news and the real stories which were the things the hugely critical aspects of the oecd report that pretty much slated five years of snp policy they were buried um, the person in charge, I have nothing personally against Ken Muir, but people from Scotland will recognize him as one of the single most you know, establishment figures in Scottish education. The fear is simple, that even though there are lots and lots and lots of different ways of doing things, even though there are different countries all around the world with different approaches, even though there are different approaches even on these islands and even inside of Scotland, 
fundamentally, we have a government that is very, very scared of real change in education, one whose radicalism extends as far as the UK constitution, but no further. A party for whom the status quo really suits them fine, where who know that proper reforms would run across at least two parliamentary sessions, who understand that change is hard work and don't really fancy it. So, unfortunately, it looks increasingly as though, even though we have these wonderful ideas and we have the talent and we have the ability and we have the knowledge and most of all, we have the spark, we have the catalyst, the energy there to do something. If there was ever a time, it's right now. The fear, however, is that we are going to end up after all of that. And after all that talk, remember, at the start of the pandemic about how we wouldn't go back to normal and we'd build things back better, it increasingly feels like we're at risk in Scotland of having that whole process collapse at the first hurdle, leaving us having to say sorry to the young people of Scotland. It looks like you can't have the reformed education system that your teachers want to give you and that you deserve because the people in charge ultimately think things are pretty much fine as they are. So thank you very much for tuning in this week, everybody. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, it didn't go completely wrong. Nothing crashed. The system didn't fall apart. Nothing fell on the floor. Everything's been good as far as I know. Um, for all I know, I'm going to turn on my phone and have lots of messages telling me about everything that went wrong. But um, but hopefully, hopefully that's been a success. And as as we move into it, I believe there's one more show before the, the holidays. And then we'll be back into it after that. So I'm looking for people who want to come on and talk about something, anything. If there's an issue in Scottish education that you think is underappreciated, is undersold, if there's an issue in Scottish education that you think is just, you know, the elephant in the room that nobody's talking about, if there is something wonderful happening that you think, you know, really needs to be highlighted or something terrible that you think we really need to be careful of, get in touch. Let me know. Get in touch with me on Twitter. Um, you can eat or through my website or through um, Teacher Talk, and we'll see about bringing you onto the show in the future, either as a guest or perhaps in a call in or a text in session. So, thank you very much to everybody for joining me. My name's been James McEnany. This has been the Twilight Show on Teacher Talk Radio. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.